and welcome everyone to this episode of Vetfolio Voice. In this episode, sponsored by Merck Animal Health, I'm joined by Dr. Jen Chatfield to discuss infectious disease and vaccinations. If you've never heard Dr. Chatfield talk, you're in for a treat. She's really fun to talk to and a wealth of knowledge. I hope you walk away from this talk learning as much as I did. A little about my guest, Dr. Jennifer Chatfield is the board certified staff veterinarian at 4J Conservation Center. She's a diplomate of both the American College of Zoological Medicine and the American College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine. Dr. Chatfield is a national thought leader in infectious disease and conservation medicine. She's been a practice owner, a relief vet, worked in public health, serves as a member of the National Veterinary Response Team, and is a Medical Reserve Corps member. She serves on the advisory boards for DVM 360, Pet Vet Magazine, and VP Next Gen, and as an associate editor for the Journal of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine. Along with her twin brother, Dr. Jason Chatfield, she co-hosts the incredibly popular podcast, Chats with the Chatfields. And Dr. Jen and the entire Chatfield family were recently profiled by Pet Vet Magazine. Lifelong learning is a passion of hers and led Dr. Chatfield to create a YouTube channel dedicated to helping animal lovers provide better care through improved communication with veterinary professionals. Through her popular show, Is This a Thing? Veterinary Translations for Pet Owners, she teaches animal lovers all about preventative medicine, behavior challenges, infectious diseases, and more. Dr. Chatfield's peer-reviewed publications range from pharmacokinetics to wild animal behavior to infectious disease and assisted reproduction in endangered species. She's an instructor for FEMA and DHS courses and was a regional leader for the National Disaster Medicine System team for several years. Dr. Chatfield developed the Veterinary Support to Zoological Animals in a Disaster for the National Veterinary Response Team's training curriculum. She's also chaired the Florida Veterinary Medical Association's One Health Committee and co-chaired the FBMA's Disaster Response Committee. Dr. Chatfield has a particular interest in infectious diseases and biosecurity, and her work for the Department of Homeland Security's courses has been focused on topics such as foreign animal diseases, quarantine and isolation, and malicious introduction of pathogens. Dr. Chatfield served on the curriculum redevelopment team for the nationally renowned DHS course, Emergency Response to a Domestic Biological Incident. Her extensive experience in public health includes developing a jurisdiction's plans for response to bioterrorism in a large metropolitan area. She was an original founder of the Pasco Hernando Veterinary Medical Association and served as its president since 2008. Dr. Chatfield completed a congressional fellowship working in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2016 to 2018. Dr. Chatfield is one of the most popular speakers at the largest veterinary conferences and has been quoted in national magazines, including Better Homes and Gardens. She was selected as a future leader by the AVMA and has been awarded two gold stars for contributions to veterinary medicine by the FVMA. And just to remind us that she is indeed a real person, not just a veterinary superhuman. On a more personal note, Dr. Chatfield loves French bulldogs, Himalayan cats, the dirtiest of vodka martinis, and basking on Caribbean beaches. I can get down with all of those things. Let's get into our episode. All right, I'm joined today by the wonderful Dr. Jen Chatfield. Dr. Chatfield, thanks for being here with me today. 
No, thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited. We're going to talk about some of my favorite things. Yes, let's talk about, I guess, infectious diseases here. We didn't really structure anything formal or anything like that. We just kind of said, let's start talking and, and see where we end up with this. So, you know, one of the first things I have to written down to talk about is lepto. So now let's talk about lepto. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about lepto? I think people don't talk enough about lepto. I agree. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I guess I should, should correct that. I feel like sometimes people are talking incorrectly about lepto. And okay. so, yeah, because lepto is a funny thing. It's a, it's a re-emerging pathogen, as you know, which means it's, it's been here before. It's not novel. It's not new, but it is re-emerging into uh, populations where we haven't seen it. We didn't see it with frequency. So it's considered re-emerging, but it's changed a little bit. And by that, I mean, especially in our world of vet med, right? So passed in the urine, that's still the same still a bacterial infection. It's still actually considered to be present everywhere all the time. But the thing that's changed is where we're seeing the most infections in companion animals, right? Yes. So we used to think of this in, you know, kind of our farm dogs and, yep. you know, they spend a lot of time outdoors in the woods and things like that. But um, we're seeing it not so much in those dogs anymore. There's a different population. Can you remind us what that is? Yeah. So that, and that's been a kind of a shift in about the last like 20 years or so, right. Um, is that we, we did, it, it used to be, we would only vaccinate certain dogs. And, and honestly, that was okay because like, every other vaccination decision, what I'm going to administer to that dog or that cat or that ferret or what have you is based on my assessment, based on their lifestyle description from their owner and my understanding of how they live, their risk of exposure, right? Risk of right. exposure. So I make do my risk-based assessment. It just so happens that it's pretty easy because, hey, a lot of our pets live the same lives. <laughs> You know, you make a really good point with that. Cause I do remember like, you know, that was like always what we talked about in school when we were formulating vaccine plans is risk-based assessment and vaccinating for the lifestyle and, and things like that. But I think we're seeing with this lepto distribution that, yeah, maybe they're more similar than we thought they were. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. I mean, dogs live, a lot of dogs live the same lifestyle and that's where we get that concept that has really, uh, I guess it's kind of waned a little bit, but it, it peaked a few years ago where people are adhering to this thought of core vaccines, right? Like every dog should get these, but I still like to make an individual risk-based assessment because that is what is going to keep me right? Keep my rear end out of a sling and keep the pet the safest and also keep the owner the safest because things like lepto are zoonotic, right? Owners can contract lepto from dogs that are infected. And so the signal mint has changed for your classic lepto case. So the three risk factors that have been established now currently are less than 15 pounds in body weight. Well, that's different, right? Mm -hmm. And then also um, urban dwelling, living in a city, which makes sense really, if you think about it, mm -hmm. right. Because of the, the, like one of the most common reservoirs is rats, right. right? Rodent population. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then unvaccinated, which I would imagine many urban dogs under 15 pounds, there was probably a pretty good population that were unvaccinated. Hello, Los Angeles. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, they're having yes, a they massive had an outbreak, outbreak or they're mm -hmm. still in the middle of this outbreak. 
they're still in the middle of this massive outbreak of lepto. And it's funny because I thought to myself, I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, and I ran into some veterinarians, uh, recently at a conference out West and they were from LA and they came up to me after my lecture, because of course I talked about lepto some and they came up and they said, man, we we're vaccinating all over the place. And I said, I think that's great. And the one, uh, veterinarian, she had moved out to LA from the East. And she said, yeah, she said, when I first moved out there a few years ago, nobody vaccinated anything for lepto. And I said, well, you don't have to say that. I think we all know that now. <laughs> it's kind of self-evident here. Hello, Captain <laughs> Obvious. So yeah, so so I thought that was really, I mean, it's not great, right? Because lepto is, is, a, is a problem and the hepatic form of lepto has a very high mortality rate in people and dogs, right? 40 something percent. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, and so, you know, uh, it, it it's not funny, but it's ironic. I guess mm-hmm. not funny, haha, but ironic. And so, so I think it's fantastic, you know, in Arizona, which is, you know, the desert, not like where I live in Florida and, and where you live in Florida, we right. have water, <laughs> we have this thing called water. Um, Lots and Lepto, of it. Yeah. And Lepto does like water and it likes tropical environments, but it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And so in Arizona, like for the past handful of years, they've had outbreaks every single year. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And so when you make that risk-based assessment in my mind for a dog, if they ever come across a puddle, if they ever, frankly, if they ever go outside and if they certainly, if they're less than 15 pounds and living in an urban area, come on, doctor, why aren't you vaccinating them? You know, after we did our call where we were kind of deciding what we were going to talk about and everything like that, we touched on the risk factors for lepto a little bit. And the very next day I was in the clinic with this cute white fluffy thing that the owner had just gotten and started talking about lepto. And he said, well, you know, she's, she's mostly an indoor dog and she doesn't really go outside much and all of these things. And that was one of the exact thing I told him. I said, you know, here's the risk factors. And she wasn't in an urban area, but I mean, we live out in a very rural area where there's lots of standing water and, and ponds and puddles and, and all these things. So good news. We got that puppy vaccinated and she did great with it. Which is another thing to talk about. One of the Mm -hmm. big concerns that makes people hesitate is they worry about reactions to the lepto vaccine. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with worrying about stuff, but I choose not to spend my energy worrying, right? And the antidote to most of my fear, my self-imposed fear for a lot of things is actually information. And I think everyone thanks COVID knows that to be true these days, right? So especially with biological stuff, because there's just you know, you and I have a lot of training and background in biological stuff, including stuff. vaccines. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> but the pet, pet, pet owners don't necessarily. And so, you know, God bless the internet. They can find all kinds of information. There's some good, some bad, and, and some indifferent. And so there, there surely was a reason to consider adverse reaction rate for administration of lepto vaccination with the first vaccines that came out. But, you know, the 80s called and they would like their their fear back, their vaccine hesitancy back, because the vaccines that we have available today are not the same. They're galaxies better. They're more pure right there. They've uh, filtered out the majority of that foreign protein, which was, you know, eliciting that crazy immune response. And so now Dr. Moore published a great paper with, I mean, just mountains of metadata 
I think that makes me cool now, right? Because I said meditate on a podcast. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I don't think so. I know so. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> right. So, so now you and I are both cool because we're talking about metadata. There we go. Yeah, I need to say it too that you said metadata. There we go. So um, they had, you know, over a million dogs that they, uh, and it's retrospective. Okay. But over a million dogs. And then they had over 3 million vaccine doses that they were examining. And what they determined was that the vaccine containing lepto was not a risk factor. So having lepto in the vaccine or just lepto being the vaccine standalone did not increase the likelihood of an adverse reaction to vaccination. So, you know, welcome to the 21st century. This is not your dad's lepto vaccine, right? And so, so I, and, and I tell owners that I talk to them about it because sometimes they've, they've heard it. And I know you have seen dramatic adverse reactions to some vaccines because, okay, they happen and they're very scary for owners and veterinarians alike, but so are the diseases that we're preventing. Right. Especially when we're talking about something like lepto that's zoonotic and, 40% mortality rate. Actually, that one was news to me. I did not realize that the hepatic form, their mortality rate was that high. So um, yes, I have seen massive anaphylaxis to a vaccine and it was really scary. And it did take me quite a bit to build my confidence back up and feel okay again. Um, but actually a lot of what did it was, um, you know, like I was mentioning our, our talk when we talked about you know, just try to figure out what we were going to talk about here. And, and mm -hmm. one of the things we touched on quite a bit was um, that it is fairly uncommon to have these right. big anaphylactic reactions. Do we have any data on how common that is or anything like that? A true anaphylaxis? Um, I think it's yes. exceedingly rare. Oh, so I was just lucky is what you're saying. <laughs> right. Unlucky. Exactly. You are very special. You are very <laughs> special, Dr. Cassie. So, you know, the, the things that we worry about, um, because that's the thing, um, and I'm glad you bring that up, right? Because then everyone instantly jumps to that horrific anaphylactic reaction where the dog just falls over. Oh yeah. And that is exceedingly rare because we classify anything like just you know, the little swelling because we gave a sub Q injection of the vaccine, the little swelling at the vaccine site, soreness at the vaccine site for 24 hours, scratching at the vaccine site, owner perceived lethargy, you know, uh, dramatic lethargy all the way to the anaphylaxis. Those are all considered the same adverse reaction when we look at the rate. So the ana, true anaphylaxis is exceedingly rare. It does happen, however. So I talk to every owner about it and then I talk with them about the risk and then we make a decision and we all move on. And most of the time, almost every time, everything is just fine. And that pet is fully vaccinated and everybody can go home and sleep a little bit better at night. As, yes. Yes. Especially Dr. Jen, the vet, because I'm not dealing with, <laughs> with like a little kid that accidentally was exposed to lepto because the dog uh. was shedding. And yeah. And that's the other thing is that when you vaccinate, um, especially with, um, certain vaccines on the market, like Nobivac, um, actually has labeled to prevent shedding of leptospires in the urine. Right. And so, you know, my usual warning to owners when, it, when, when we diagnose something that could be lepto or, or if we confirm the diagnosis is okay. So for the next month, we're not going to drink the dog urine. <laughs> I have had a, I've had an internist tell me that on the phone where I'm like, how worried should I be? And she's like, don't drink the pee. Like, right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Check. All right. But that kind of brings us back to reality, right? Right. Like, right. okay. All right. It's, it's going to be okay. The sun's going to come up again tomorrow. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. And kind of while we're on the top of these uh, zoonotic diseases, another one that we can touch on is rabies, Mm -hmm. because sometimes, you know, we don't fortunately see a ton of it in the United States, but it's still out there and causing issues. Do we? I don't know. Do Do we? we I don't. There have definitely been some cases around my area. I thought it was just a Florida thing. No. Well, so rabies is very interesting. Um, And yes, of course, I love that we're we're focused on zoonotic diseases because they are my jam. Having worked in public health on um, infectious diseases, I get quite excited. But rabies, rabies is like a little underappreciated virus, especially in America, right? I've had people tell me that rabies doesn't exist here. I've had people tell me crazy things like cats can't give you rabies. And I'm like, I mean, what kind of rock are you living under? Can I come there? It sounds lovely with rainbows and glitter. Um, But rabies certainly exists in the United States. And globally, just roughly 60,000 children die from rabies every year. 60,000 children. Oh, my gosh. I know. Don't picture us. Right. Picture kids, little kids. Um, the average age is, I think, um, five to 15 oh. um, globally. Now, in the United States, the average age of a person that um, is exposed to rabies and or uh, succumbs to rabies is an adult. Interesting. So, I know. I don't know what that says about us. But anyhow. Um, moving on. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know. I always think of when I think of rabies in the United States, I always think of like somebody who woke up with a bat in their house or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And, and that's true. That's a great point because bats are like the, the number one creature that we cite the exposure to, right? Because we do have bat rabies, but do you know what the number one domestic animal that is determined to be rabbit is in the United States? Domestic animal? Most often testing positive for rabies. Is it a cat? is cats. I would guess so. They're outside and they're not, you can't always catch them to vaccinate them. That makes sense. By far it's cats. It's cats. Well, it it makes sense. Um, for some of those reasons that you stated, but what's, what I find interesting is in the United States, you know, we, we don't have canine rabies, but we do have rabies in canines. Okay. Tell me more about that. No, I I have no idea. Any of that. I wish our listeners could see your face because she gave you guys, she gave me like this super like quizzical, like, where are you going with this? Because I'm, that don't make it no kind I'm of confused. sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's a little bit like the, um, the squares and rectangles thing. So it's a little bit like squares or rectangles, but They're not, not all rectangles all, or squares. Okay. See? Yeah. So it's the same thing. So, um, canine rabies is a specific strain of rabies, just like there's raccoon rabies and there's fox rabies and there's mongoose rabies, mongooses, mongooses, mongoose rabies. My, we'll look that up later. <laughs> yes. Later. Right. Strong letter to follow on the grammar. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's different strains of rabies. And all that means is that that um, specific strain of the virus has adapted or evolved to maintain itself in that population. Okay. So, right. And so that's why if you go to the CDC website, you'll find a lovely um, and well-colored map of the United States where it'll be like, I think they shade green for raccoons. So what that means is anywhere on the map in the U.S. where it's green, you can safely presume that every single raccoon is rabbit when you see the raccoon. And you'll be right 95% of the time because the raccoon strain of rabies is known to exist in those areas. And the same thing holds true where they have it shaded for fox or skunk or, um, but all bats in the United States, you should, I mean, just, just, just assume, just assume. Yeah, it's bats, man. So when we say that 
every raccoon that we come into contact with is rabid. Are we talking about like a strain of? I said has, you should presume, right? Presume they have rate this mm-hmm. have rabies. Mm-hmm. Like, is are the, is this maintaining, but it's not killing them? Ooh, such a good point. <laughs> Such a good point. Okay. So I grew up on a farm and there was a handful of things that I learned growing up that were like facts. These were like cold, hard facts, right? (laughs) Okay. Number one, nothing good happens after dark. Yeah. Like that's a fact. I'm sure you knew that, right? Okay. Yeah. I usually say after, after 10, well, it used to be after midnight and then I had two kids. Now it's after 10 PM. Right. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And then um, the other thing that I learned was um, growing up that any dead animal that I touched was going to give me botulism. Okay. Right. I remember I'm from the farm. Okay. Yep. And then the third thing I learned was that raccoons could carry rabies. Right. Which is not quite true. No, no. There's something in the back of my brain. Yes. You know, bring it to the front of my brain. I know. Dr. Stone, I'm so sorry. I know you taught me this. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Amy Stone, are you listening? That's the Um, one. (laughs) I know. No, no. So here's here's what's interesting um, is that uh, we used to think that, right? But if you remember from Epi, that carry, to be a carrier means that the creature's infected with the pathogen, but they never have any signs. They don't become ill. They just carry it, basically. It's like in a backpack, right? They're carrying it around. They can shed it. They can give it away, potentially but they, they don't ever get sick. Well, what we now know is that with uh, our wildlife reservoirs for rabies, if nothing else kills them, they will eventually develop clinical signs and succumb. Okay. And so like if the raccoon doesn't encounter a car or a coyote or something like this, if, if he doesn't get hit by a car, eventually rabies will kill him. So they're not truly carriers, but they are indeed serving as a reservoir for okay. the raccoon strain of rabies. And so that's why they, they can, we don't know how long they can have it for. Okay. That was going to be my next question. We don't know when they're excreting it. Like when can they, when are they shedding it in their saliva? But the one good thing that we do know about rabies is that the only way you can get it is through contaminated saliva, not blood, not urine, not feces. It is saliva specifically saliva. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy we're doing this refresher on rabies. I hope I'm not the only one with these questions and our listeners aren't out there going like, come on, Cassie. <laughs> no. And you know what here, this will help you out big time on jeopardy, Cassie. So oh, great. There was, there's, there's one other way I should say saliva, but also through organ transplant. Oh, okay. So no raccoon kidneys. Well, not only that, but human, human to human rabies transmission has occurred through organ transplant because, and I, this happened in Florida actually. So up in the panhandle, um, a poor, unfortunate soul met their end and, uh, they were good human. They had checked that box on the back of their license to be an organ donor. And so they harvested. And I think seven people, um, were given a new lease on life with different components, right? Different tissues. And then it turned out that the organ donor was rabid. Oh my goodness. Cause he, and, and what, what did the organ donor die from? Cause I mean, humans aren't carriers, right? Like we can't exactly. walk around with rabies. Exactly. Exactly. So oh listen to this. So <laughs> the cause of death on his death certificate was encephalitis of unknown origin. Oh no. Oh who's, no. Who's doing that? That's it. That just sounded like that. that like, lab. <laughs> That just sounded like that old song. Oh no. Oh no. Oh, no. 
exactly how I feel. Oh my yeah, goodness, that's true. terrible. Mm-hmm. But the good oh. news is that one of the most effective vaccines that we have is rabies. It provides sterilizing immunity. It's one of the cheapest vaccines we have. And in the United States, we while we are not accustomed to seeing people die from rabies, 30 to 60,000 people a year are treated for exposure, which costs us anywhere from eight to $12,000 a person. Right. So we're spending greater than $300 million a year on rabies here in the United States. But, you know, 95% of the human rabies cases globally occur in Africa and India. And they're almost exclusively from dog bites. That's the exposure. And it's kids. And one of the great uh, efforts to erase rabies from the face of the earth by, I think, 2030 is a collaboration between my friend, uh, Dr. Luke Gamble and Mission Rabies. Um, which is a charity that he founded and is making incredible strides in both Africa and India. And then also partnering. So every Nobivac vaccine that is uh, used in your practice or you know administered here, for every one of those, Merck supports Mission Rabies. And so you're helping to uh, erase rabies with two programs, actually, Mission Rabies, and they also support AFIA which I think works mostly in Africa. So two incredible global charities being supported by people, you know, complying with the law in the United States and uh, (laughs) vaccinating their pet. So reasons upon reasons upon reasons to make sure everybody's vaccinated for rabies. Yes, 100%, 100%. So I hate to take us away from zoonotic diseases because I know these are your jam, but, but canine influenza. Oh, friend. All oh, no. Are you? Are oh, no. Am I going to do I need to re say that because now I'm going <laughs> to look like a dummy? No, I know you said that on purpose, right? To get our listeners to like perk their ears up. Of course I um, did. Of course I did. Mm-hmm. I, I've never thought of canine influenza as a zoonotic disease. Is this like common knowledge that I'm just missing out on? In my experience, giving influenza lectures, no. People okay, are like, okay. what? <laughs> All right. I will, I will bear my soul then and, and be honest that I had no idea this was a zoonotic disease. Right. Well, we don't, we don't have, um, data, like there's no reports of, um, dogs giving flu, you know, to humans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's reports of cats, right. In the shelter situation giving, sure. but not dogs. Thank, thank goodness. Cause otherwise people might be just like abandoning their dogs somewhere. I don't yeah. know. Okay. Um, but also here's the thing. This is why I, I just live with incredible admiration for influenza as a pathogen because it is the king of mutation and adaptability. Influenza, I feel like could adapt and overcome almost any situation that the universe will throw at it. And so that's why when I talk about influenza, I am usually causing people's like jaws to drop and for them to say, what, when I say, all influenzas are zoonotic. Okay. So that's a good way to think of it. I've not thought of it like that before, mm-hmm. but I yep. mean, it makes sense. Right. And um, so, and the, the reason for that, and the reason that I'm so in awe of influenza is that think of, think of diseases in our lifetime, right? Like viewers, you can't see Cassie's much younger than I am. And- oh goodness. <laughs> And so even in her, her young lifetime. So, but even in your experience as a veterinarian, like since you've been a veterinarian, we've had zoonotic diseases emerge. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about other ones. Right. And so we've had the introduction of a novel influenza. Let's see. um, One, two, three, three, three times that I'm aware of in my lifetime into the United States. 
right? We had 2009 H1N1, which was a human disease that people inappropriately labeled swine flu. And then we had, before that, we had in 2005, we had the characterization initially of dog flu, canine flu, right? the H3N8. And that was originally uh, found in the Greyhound kennels, right? And then in uh, 2015, we had the introduction of yet another canine influenza, H3N2. H3N2? Yes. Ha, I do remember something. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and actually like kudos to you for remembering that because people don't remember, most people don't even realize we had a second one come in and they're like, it's, it's a little bit like cavities. People are like, didn't we all grow that dog? Flu? Didn't we do that? Yeah. Well, so we had the outbreak here in Gainesville in 2017. And so we were kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle of it when all that happened. And yeah, there was a lot of talk about bivalent influenza vaccine. Um, and we talked about the strains and having to explain that to people and, um, fortunately, slower mutation rate for that one than we see in humans. So, yep, um, that was a selling point possible. for the vaccine, right? It, still well, possible. it is, but but that's the reason that companies like like Merck Animal Health they are constantly talking to practitioners. They are conducting biosurveillance. They are looking for that next point mutation because this is why influenza is king. Is because we don't know. By we, I mean like the collective we <laughs> don't know um, what drives the mutations for influenza. So an influenza can um, mutate faster than anything I've ever heard of, right? All the influenzas originate with dabbling ducks, right? They're the source of all influenzas originally. And it's a GI situation for ducks that, and that's why it's the dabbling ducks. They sit in the water and they're paddling around and they dabble. They eat their food in their water that they're sitting in. Okay. You know what else they do in that water? I do. But of course I they're do. defecating in the water yeah. at the same time. Right. And so an influenza viron can be ingested by the duck. And then by the time it passes out the duck, it could have mutated. Oh my goodness. And Right. So then the question just becomes, well, like, well, what's the GI transit time of a duck? And <laughs> again, for Jeopardy. Right. It's, it can be like 20 minutes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I what, was thinking when you said mutations, I was going, yeah, well, they can mutate multiple times in a single flu season, but apparently they can mute, mutate multiple times in 20 minutes. Yeah. But that's, Goodness. but the good thing is like, not all the mutations are the same, right? Sure. Like, you know, and so, so we talk about drift right? Anagenic drift. And that's just kind of like the little ones and it's kind of drifting around genetically. It's just kind of mutating a little bit. It doesn't really cause a huge difference. And, you know, the immune system can still recognize it, but it's just a little different. And then you can have a reassortment, which implies a larger chunk of the genetic material is morphed and changed. And that is what can allow it to infect a new species. That's a big enough change that it can go from pigs to people or horses to dogs or birds to dogs, right? Like the H3N2 that came in. So anyway, so there you go. That ability to change for no apparent reason is why influenza wins. Because that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes mm -hmm. sense. And uh, you mentioned birds to dogs because that mm -hmm. was in my brain when we were talking about the different outbreaks that have happened in our lifetimes because there was the avian influenza Oh yeah, as well. Yep, the um, high path avian influenza outbreak. I actually was a task force leader on that response. So you think I should have brought that one up? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, the bird thing. The bird, I remember the bird thing. Oh yeah, it was like oh. six or eight weeks in Iowa for that. Oh, oh yeah. Good. I, I was, I was, 
I don't know, I was a kid with that one, but definitely, you know, it was in, I think it was in college for, um, the, the swine flu, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then you mentioned the dog flu in the Greyhound kennels. I think that was Dr. Crawford at UF actually go Gators. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and, and cause it, it, it happened in Florida, right. And right. so virologists that Florida characterized it. And then of course it was everywhere, right. It went up to New York and it was everywhere. But what I think is interesting is this concept of outbreaks, right. So having influenza outbreaks because there's equine influenza also, right. You know, horses get flu, obviously, And when I talk to like companion animal practitioners, they, when they talk about vaccinating for influenza, frequently the answer I get is, oh, but we don't have an outbreak right now. And I'm like, great. (laughs) Like bacon. Like, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? I want to roll my eyes here and be like, (laughs) oh, well, you don't have an outbreak because you vaccinate, but I've told, I've been that guy. Like I've, I've, those words have come out of my mouth, but since our, since our initial talk, no longer. Right. Because, and so then, then, so uh, it's kind of a mean trick, right? Like I like to say, do you know any equine practitioners? Great. Why don't you give them a ring a ding and ask them if they vaccinated any horses for flu today or yesterday, or even last week. And they're going to say yes. And then you're going to say, great. Cause we're in an outbreak, an equine influenza outbreak. And they're going to say, no, what? No, <laughs> because that's what we do. Right. Because equine influenza is not a new thing since the late 1800s. We've known about equine influenza, right? But dog flu is a new thing since 2005. And so it's like, it's like when Bordetella vaccination first came out for dogs and cats, I'm sorry, for, for dogs, we only vaccinated certain dogs and only in the like context of an outbreak. And now with our risk-based assessment, almost every single dog is social and gets a, you know, a Bordetella vaccination, right? Absolutely. Well, the risk profile for infection with Bordetella exactly mirrors that for influenza friends. So if you're vaccinating them for Bordetella, you've clearly recognized that risk exposure. You should also be recommending the vaccination for influenza and it should be the bivalent because we have two of them that are now endemic in the American dog population. So then if you ever have to answer that question when the attorney asks you and you're sitting to the left of the judge with your right hand raised, I mean, holy moly. So you recognize the risk doctor did you vaccinate the dog for influenza? Oh gosh, hopefully never have to have to answer that. But to redeem myself, Dr. Stone, <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> I do remember you, you teaching us if they're at risk for Bordetella, they're at risk for influenza. And absolutely good rule of thumb to keep in mind when you're talking to people about vaccines. Personally, I think the, you know, the Bordetella vaccines, the upper respiratory vaccines are a little bit easier to talk to people about because it is just, you know, that local immune response. And, you know, people you tend to say, you know, this is only going to help. We can only, only help by giving this vaccine. So you say it's that local immune response, right? So you're presuming that everyone's using the intranasal or oral, right? Well, yeah, but that's what data is interesting also. Okay. So yeah, because you know, we have this new thing now. We don't call it kennel cough anymore because right. we know now we know that upper respiratory infection in dogs is almost always multi-pathogen, not just a single bug, but you know, multiple bugs. And furthermore, we know that the glue that holds that complex family together <laughs> when it's invading the dog's upper respiratory tract is para-influenza. Right. So uh, most often an upper respiratory infection in a dog will be parainfluenza plus mycoplasma or parainfluenza plus strep, right? Strep equizo or 
parainfluenza and bordetella. But parainfluenza seems to be most commonly the glue that's holding canine infectious respiratory disease complex together, right? So wouldn't you think we'd want to vaccinate for parainfluenza in the, at the local tissue level? That would make sense to do the local tissue level, but then it's also in our, in our DAPs, right? Mm-hmm. And we're doing the yep. systemic plus that, um, IGA, IGA, holy moly immunology. So that's, that's what I also find interesting is that I do also have a, not only veterinarians, but pet owners that will ask me, they'll be like, so we're, but we're vaccinating them twice for it. Oh my gosh. You know, and to quote my friend, Dr. Aaron Smiley, heavens to Betsy. <laughs> it's heavens, coverage. heavens to Betsy, uh, <laughs> yes. but it makes sense, you know, because we're and, and I know you're like, yes, I know it makes sense. This is what I, what I study all the time that, you know, we, we protect that local tissue. We stop it on the way in. And then if it makes it past, we have that local immunity as well to stop any serious disease. So yes, yes. Heaven to Betsy, heavens to Betsy, vaccinate them twice. Actually to kind of underscore, we're all living in a time right now where we can take things from regular life into vet med, right? So when I talk to owners about that, I'm like, no, no, here's how you already know this information. Thanks COVID. Thanks COVID, right? Because they jab you in the arm for a vaccine for COVID, right? And then what we now know, because of course it enters you, enters your body through your respiratory tract largely, and it's a respiratory disease initially, uh, upper respiratory initially, and for most people it remains. So vaccinated people are getting kind of mild infections. And so people are saying, oh my God, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm like, wait, stop just for a second. Just remove the COVID part. And let's just talk about uh, upper respiratory virus for which we have an injectable vaccine. Well, what that means is that the virus has to get into the bloodstream. So this is quick and dirty, right? A virus has to get into the bloodstream for the immune system to go Holy moly, we recognize it. Let's stamp it out, which means it can cause some mild upper respiratory signs before it gets into the bloodstream. So you can have that. So what we do by doing it like the intranasal is we cut out that middleman of having to have that. So it's, it's really, it's really kind of um, common sense. Once you understand the, all the ins and outs that it's more effective because it stimulates local tissue response with the, the IgA. And then also it's contained in most of your combination vaccinations, like your DHLPP. And so you, you vaccinate there as well and try to cut off that complex development. So. That's right. And I said in our, in our DHP vaccine, I should have said our DHLPP vaccines, <laughs> put that L in there. Well, and here's the thing, like, I hate to say that, but you know, I'm from the farm, so I have to catch myself or I'm not calling it the combo shot, the combo (laughs) shot, the five way. Yes. Yes. I hear about the five way all the time. Exactly. Can you put the shot? Can you put the five way shot doc? Yes. Yes. He can't be sick. I gave gave him the nine way. I'm like, nah, nine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that's supposed to go in your cow, man. Not your dog. heavens Uh, to Betsy heavens to Betsy (laughs) yes exactly Um, well you know we kind of went off on this whole upper respiratory tangent which hopefully people found helpful and I didn't totally reveal my um how much of immunology that I (laughs) don't remember um but you know to circle back and say with that Bordetella, that upper respiratory vaccine that's either going orally or intranasally, 
is in my opinion, kind of an easy thing to talk to owners about because they're, you know, they always tell me, you know, we can only help, but I've certainly made sure more recently, but just in general, that anybody who I'm having that conversation with is also hearing about influenza and making oh, yeah. sure that we're protected. Because the, the picture you paint, while it's a, it's one that none of us want to think about, but it, it is a possibility, like you're saying, that if, there's, if there ever were to be an issue with that dog and that owner came back and said, well, why didn't you vaccinate them for influenza? We never even talked about it. That's, that's not really a position you want to be in. No. And so, um, that's the other thing is that as veterinarians, we, we have to talk about a lot of things in a very small room in a very short amount of time with people who may or may not be mentally prepared to hear all that information. Right. And so it, sometimes it feels like I just don't have the energy to talk about one more thing, right? you know, I just, you know, and people don't see influenza. Right. And they don't. So for me, it can be very difficult However, I kind of lump them when I'm having the conversation. I just like you did, I lump them into like, here's our respiratory stuff, and I lump the other stuff, right? And then just for good measure, I lump stuff that can kill us and them. There you go. Right? Yeah. And so <laughs> so like- we, we, we kind of talk about all of it, but I make those recommendations, and then it's not my pet, it's their pet. And I make those recommendations and then they make a determination of what we're going to do. And, you know, for those ones who are so afraid of lepto, or if the dog has a history of adverse reactions and I've gotten an owner to understand and agree that this dog is at risk for lepto exposure because it's a dog living in the United States. Sometimes I will premedicate those dogs. Sure. Because if I don't, you know it. And I know oh, it. that'll yeah. be the small white fluffy that has mm-hmm. like the crazy reaction. Right. That'll so be the one it is. And so I can sleep at night and it makes the owner more comfortable as well. And I think that's important, but it's important right. to have those conversations. You got to mention it. You got to mention the risk to us. You got to mention the risk to the dogs. And then you got to mention your recommendation. So lump them together and kind of pair, pair those ones that are respiratory up together, pair those ones that are not respiratory, like the GI stuff, and then put together all those ones that can kill us and them. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Chatfield, I feel like I could sit here all day and talk to you about infectious diseases and vaccinations and ways to think about all those things. But unfortunately, I I wish we had all day, but either way, even just in the short conversation, I feel like, I mean, obviously you guys heard me like learning in real time on this during this conversation. I hope everybody else did too. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Um, No, but I will say that if you have questions or if you kind of just want to share something with me, you can find me on the internet <laughs> where we can find all our nice things. And we can, you can find me on the internet. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Jen, the vet. You can find me on the internet on my podcast at chatfieldshow.com where we talk all about infectious disease and all sorts of other pet and animal issues. And I love to hear from, from folks. So yeah, if you feel the need, please feel free to uh, reach out to me because I love to hear from practitioners and pet parents too. And importantly, where can we find Cosette? 
Oh, Cosette. <laughs> now look, she's really, she's really trying to uh, make friends with me <laughs> as a guest <laughs> on her show. So Cosette is my farm fresh Frenchie. You can actually find Cosette in a number of my YouTube videos. Yay. <laughs> she's a ham for the camera. <laughs> um, but currently she's sleeping and breathing, breathing quite well. And yes, she got up the nose. She got an intranasal vaccine, even though she has such a little tiny nose. It's only like half a mil. It's like nothing, you know, just has to go up there. So yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's sleeping well. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cassie, for having me on. I appreciate it. Dr. Chatfield, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me and let's talk again soon. A big thank you to Merck Animal Health for sponsoring this event. If you'd like to find out more about this or other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, It's a great day.